0: one and all to episode 236 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the phylogenetic trees episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out there are 236 different phylogenetic trees representing the history of evolutionary divergences among five species. Yes, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds entirely fascinating. And with that wonderful little bit of an Entirely fascinating knowledge. I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Hello, Tim. Hello,
1: Matthias. How were things over in Texas land?
0: Um, well, I am figuring out just exactly what life is like on Claritin. And, uh, I'm not liking it too much. And what, other are, than that... Are you, like, high? It, no, it's just... I don't know. I don't like... Like, it works because the runny nose has stopped working, but you like, literally have to take it all the time. I mean, what a, what a way to sell you a product. It's like, hey, take this and never stop taking it or you'll die of allergic reaction to whatever is in the air. Uh, so I'm like, okay, well, I'd really rather not die of allergic reaction. And of course, yes, I am, uh, definitely uh, exaggerating and whatnot you know but so ha- have um, you become
1: like dependent on claritin like, i guess, are, are you claritin because i think junkie? i forgot
0: to take it today i think i forgot to take it today and now i literally feel like i'm starting to get sick start to feel like i'm getting congested and everything and then over the last week or so i've been taking it every day and then i noticed that my runny nose has gone away and i don't feel like stuffy-headed anymore but i also don't feel like it just feels like it's just Weird. It. I just feel like there's always crap in my nose. So I feel like it's kind of stuffy, but I don't sound stuffy, and my nose isn't running anymore. So it's kind of like it's working, but I just don't like the way it works.
1: It's okay. You, you can admit that you're actually taking opium.
0: Yes, that, that you, you have found me out. I am my own Sherlock Holmes, medicating with cocaine. I mean codeine, right? Yes, that's what I meant to say. Yes, codeine. Not cocaine. <sighs> anyway, so how are, how are you, sir?
1: I'm doing well. It was kind of nice watching all these movies. All, all five of these movies we'll be covering this past weekend. And no, I mean, I'm not considering The Mummy as one of these five movies. But <laughs> it's been years <laughs> since we had so many movies to watch all at once when they're, they're actually really good.
0: This is true. I, I have definitely really loved... Uh, reconnecting with these movies, and we'll get into it more uh, later on. It turns out that as I'm watching these movies, I remembered watching all these movies when I was a kid. The only the, the exception was The Best Years of Our Lives. I had not ever seen that before. But all of these other movies, I'm like god it was it was just so good to come back to these movies again and a couple of them i kind of felt like i had seen them before but then i could like here i'm watching them unfold and everything and like they were expendable i remember sitting with my stepdad and watching this stuff on amc back when there was only amc and they actually did show american movie classics um much like Turner Classic movies today, the, that format back then. And, um, you know, and it was just kind of, it was amazing to watch, you know, to have these just nostalgic feelings come back. And yeah, so, so, but we'll get to that more later. We'll, we'll get to that later. Um, and since we do have so much stuff to watch, should we just go ahead and get right into all the goodies? We probably should. Alright, then let's do it. We're gonna jump into the old mail sack right quick. Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack, like you should. Yeah! And of course, um, as usual, if you'd like to send us an email, please do so. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, we have forty four new followers on Twitter, which uh, Tim, you said, put us over a it put us over a threshold.
1: That's right, Matthias. We are now over four hundred followers currently on Twitter. Woo!
0: Which you know, we would love any one of those people to please send us an email because we didn't have any emails again this week. So the sack runneth empty. I'm telling you what, it's, it's like we have literally had a vasectomy of the mail sack. I think just, this is
1: when we need two different versions of the mail sack song. We need one with the kids <laughs> cheering, the other one with the
0: kids uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> either crying or, or absolutely we devastated. Need, we need you know? one like, like when the price is right when you lose. <laughs> or the old let's make a deal when you pick door number three and it's the donkey, you know.
1: Or how about a castration sound?
0: Like, oh like a well, snip maybe maybe okay well maybe not specifically castration but yeah sure just a snip snip would probably be Are you sure you know. cuz I am prepared to go
1: through <sighs> hours of audio I, yeah, and video and castration I'm going
0: to say thank you I am I am so glad that you are committed in that regard but I'm going to pass But uh <laughs> yeah so in all seriousness uh, in seriousness thank you so much for following us if you want to follow us it's at the SLS cast on Twitter and one more time the show at slscast.com for email and uh, I believe without further ado we got some news to talk about don't we we do indeed and here we go folks let's do it it's time for the news And first up from me, uh, from HollywoodReporter.com, by way of Pamela McClintock and Mia Galupo. Um, let's see here. It says, Seth Rogen criticizes Sony's plan to release, quote, clean versions, end quote, of films. Quote... Holy shit, please don't do this to our movies, thanks, end quote, tweeted the actor, writer, producer, whose production company has long had offices on the Sony lot. A new home entertainment initiative at Sony Pictures offering, quote, clean, end quote, versions of movies in hopes of appealing to a wider audience is already drawing the ire of some in Hollywood's creative community, namely... Seth Rogen. The, quote, clean version, end quote, project will make the broadcast TV or airline of a title available when a consumer purchases a film in its original form on iTunes, Vudu, and Fandango. Now, I'd like to stop right there, because it says, When a consumer purchases a film in its original form... On iTunes, Voodoo, and Fandango Now. Which means you have to have the original version of the film anyway. That means you're going to get both. Which means if you feel the need to have clean version because that's what you're into and you understand that you are not getting it in its original format but something that is more family friendly for whatever reason, then that's fine. But you always have the option to go back and watch it as it was originally intended. Carrying on, the initiative launches with 24 films, including Big Daddy, 51st Dates, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, all of the Spider-Man movies, and more serious fare, such as Captain Phillips and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's important to note here, uh, in, in the article, it says, None of the first 24 titles star Rogan, who has made a number of films for Sony, most famously The Interview, the R-rated comedy which prompted the devastating hack, of the studio uh let's see here it says that rogan's last film at sony was the r-rated film sausage party um and uh let's see here sony's home entertainment group says in promoting the program quote the clean version allows viewing for a wider audience giving people the chance to watch their favorite films together films of all ratings can be adapted as clean versions however the extent of such adaptation can vary and quote now that is definitely the bulk of that article there's a little bit more there if you would like as well as a video version if you prefer um tim thoughts again if you want to check it out hollywoodreporter.com by way of pamela McClintock and mia galupo seth rogan criticizes sony's plan to release quote clean versions unquote of films your thoughts tim do you care does it matter i don't think personally that rogan has anything to worry about because the whole point of their films is that uh, his films uh is that they are raunchy they are
1: um yeah there's there's no point
0: to watching their movies without right the 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 whole idea is that yeah it's it's irreverent it's raunchy uh it's verbose um it, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I'm
1: looking through the full list here of the 20s some odd movies, and yeah, you have 51st Dates, val the Year, Big Daddy, Captain Phillips. Not a lot of like hard R movies here. You have Elysium, the Ghostbusters movie, Goosebumps with Jack Black. I don't know really why you, we need a censored version of Goosebumps, as well as uh, Pixels and the original Spider-Man movies. Again, I don't understand why. Uh, Actually, all the Spider-Man movies, I should say. I don't understand why we really need censored versions of this. Uh, But then we get to the one hard, raunchy R-rated movie here on this list, and that is Step Brothers. And what's the point of seeing Step Brothers if it's going to be cleaned up? Now, I, I, I didn't realize this at first, Matt, that, yeah, so when you buy, I guess you purchase the original movie and you said you... You get the censored version. Is that through VOD? So like on iTunes or Voodoo or whatever, if you buy Step Brothers, you'll get the censored version along with
0: it. Is that the deal? Uh, yes. You're okay. getting um, you're getting the broadcast TV or airline version of the title, and it's just available to you. So you, it's not like um, it's going to force you to only ever watch just this clean version. You literally get both. So you're going to be able to choose. And it's uh, and, and it's when you're doing the purchases on iTunes, Vudu, and Fandango now.
1: Yeah, I, I just think it really op- just opens it up to more bullshit later on. I think the idea of having the censored versions available to own is stupid because this reminds me, uh, years ago, and I don't know, Matt, if you've seen this documentary, if you even know what I'm talking about, but I think in Utah...
0: <laughs> the Mormon, was, yeah, the Mormon thing, yeah. Where yeah, yeah, there, there was a...
1: Yeah, there was this like underground, well actually it wasn't underground, like people opened up stores, their own blockbuster stores, where the owner of this store would go and take popular movies that he would buy at Walmart, and he would re-edit it. So like Godfather or Scarface, it wouldn't be as violent, it wouldn't be as bloody. What's the point of doing that? Not only A, you're ruining the director's vision, the art, the artist's vision, but There's, what's the point of actually watching Scarface? It's, it's all about the violence. It's not all about the violence, but a portion of it's about the violence.
0: And, And I think that's the point, though. That, that the point here is choice. Um, be, but the choice is now being made by the studio. So, yes, you can still argue at the end of the day, artistic integrity. But, there was, believe it or not, there was a TV cut of Scarface. How they managed to get, I mean, it, it's actually in the making of, if you have, if you have the collector's version of Scarface on DVD or Blu-ray, then they actually talk about how it, like, nobody thought it was possible to make a TV cut of Scarface, and yet they did it. Um, and it worked, for the most part. So, so at least in this regard, while yes, artistic integrity is still a thing, this is now done at the discretion and the behest of the studio. So it's not just somebody going, well, I know how to edit. I will decide what's family. No, now at least the studio is going to do it. Um, and then it does allow people to see it. Now, sure, something like Step Brothers does seem kind of dumb, uh, to, to dumb down, so to speak. But, I mean, there's stuff in there. Like even in the, the Spider-Man, like the original Spider-Man trilogy, you've got, um, Kirsten Dunst and I mean, you know, the whole rain where you can completely see through her top and everything else. I mean, it's like, come on, the top is just at this point a formality because the rain is making it so you can see your boobs clear as day. So it's stuff like that, I would imagine, is the stuff that they're taking out. Yeah. Um and, and and you know what, that's fine. If if you're if you think your kids can handle that, and if that's stuff that you're cool. And if you don't, then now at least you have the option to see something that's not. But at least if you're going to do something stupid like this, um then have fun why with not? it. I think. Yeah, at least at least now the studio is somewhat in, in control. This particular thing makes me
1: remember Die Hard, the whole Mr. Falcon instead of saying yippee ki motherfucker, he Mr. Falcon. And then it also <laughs> makes me remember the Edgar Wright's movies like Hot Fuzz, like Usually after the movie, or after they make a movie, and after it's been released, the same people go in and record additional dialogue to make these airline and censored versions. And so with Hot Fuzz, and I'm sure other Edgar Wright movies also, with Simon Pegg, they purposely go in and do ridiculous edits. So if you're stuck, like me, stuck watching an edited version or censored version of of Hot Fuzz, where they curse a lot and there's a lot of uh, gratuitous violence... It's at least somewhat entertaining because they purposefully have fun doing it and, and kind of make fun of themselves and make fun of the whole system of, of creating censored versions of their own movies. But yeah, no, that's very interesting, though.
0: Well, what do you have for us, sir?
1: All right. So my first pieces of news come to us from the TheHollywoodReporter.com. Both of these are RIPs. First up here, Fred Cohen-Camp, Oscar-winning cinematographer on The Towering Inferno, dies at 94. This here is written by Mike Barnes, and it says this. His long list of credits also include Patton, Papillon, is it, it's Papillon, right? Pion? Papillon. Thank you. I, that's, I can never remember. Yeah. French for butterfly. Butterfly? Yes. Papillon? Papillon? Islands. Papillon? Island's in the Stream, and The Man from U.N.C.L.E., he has died at the age of 94. Cohen Camp died May 31st. His daughter, Kathy, told HollyReporter.com he suffered a stroke last year and died at her home in Bonita Springs, Florida. Cohen Camp spent more than a decade at MGM, where he served as director of photography on several films, as well as the stylish NBC series The Man from U.N.C.L.E. The innovative cinematographer won his Oscar, shared with Joseph F. Birak for the disaster film classic The Towering Inferno in 1974, and also was nominated for Patton in 1970 in Islands in the Stream, 1977, a pair of George C. Scott stars directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. He also collaborated with Schaffner on Papillon, Yes, Giorgio in 1982, and Welcome Home in 1989. Cohen Camp served as a DP on more than 40 features, including Live a Little, Love a Little, 1968, The Great Bank Robbery, from 1969, Beyond the Valley of Dolls, 1970, Billy Jack, 1971, Kansas City Bomber, 1972, Uptown Saturday Night, 1974, and the list goes on from there, including including The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonanza, Across the Eighth Dimension, from 1984, The article does go on for quite a bit more, and I highly recommend you all to give it a read. Again, that was Fred Cohen-Camp, Oscar-winning cinematographer, on The Towering Inferno, dies at 94. Next up, again, via The Hollywood Reporter, Adam West, straight-faced star of TV's Batman, dies at 88, written by Mike Barnes, and it says... That Adam West, the ardent actor who managed to keep his tongue in cheek while wearing the iconic cowl of the Cape Crusader in the classic 1960s Batman series, has died. He was 88. West, who was at the pinnacle of pop culture after Batman debuted in January 1966, only to see his career fall victim to typecasting after the ABC show Flamed Out, died Friday night in Los Angeles after a short battle with leukemia, a family spokesperson said. West died peacefully surrounded by his family and is survived by his wife, Marcella, or Marcel. Six children, five grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren, Quote, our dad always saw himself as the bright knight and aspired to make a positive impact on his fans' lives. He was and always will be our hero, end quote, his family said in a statement. Raised on a ranch outside Walla Walla, Washington West, caught the attention of Batman producer William Dozier when he played Captain Quick, a James Bond-type character with a sailor's cap, in commercials for Nestle's Quick. And the article does go on for a little bit more. I highly recommend you check out these two articles again, both from the com. The first was the the passing of Fred Cohen camp at the age of 94. And lastly, Adam West at the age of 88. R.I.P. Oh, yeah. I mean, Adam West in particular was pretty sad because his resurgence has been very exciting to watch the past so many years. Whether if it was on... Family Guy, which I never really watched, so it was neither here nor there for me. But watching him at, at, uh, at Batman conventions and in documentaries. And then he was also voicing Batman in a new, in a, in a Batman animated movie that came out last year. Him and Burt Ward did one together as the classic Batman and Robin duo. And I don't know if he finished recording or not, but they were working on a new one um, just recently. So I I hope he finished doing it. That would be an excellent sign-off, I guess, from Adam West.
0: So, Matt, what do you think about these two? Well, uh, on the first one, definitely uh, sad. I actually did not realize that his career had spanned so much. I did not realize that he had gone from Papillon all the way to things that were so recent. Um, So that is definitely sad. But uh, I was truly sad about uh, Adam West. It's just so nice... When someone is able to turn their career around by just embracing everything that made, um, the, the stunted career, as it were, possible. And so, um, and, and while he was definitely celebrated in the winter of his life, I, I really do think that it was just fantastic that he was that he was just so gracious about it and i think that that went into the longevity that was but i do think that the zaniness and the fun was definitely expounded upon in family guy which i've watched i want to say like 14 seasons of that show so i'm pretty sure i've seen just about every appearance of adam west on that show um and he was hilarious it was just so wonderful to see him do something that was so zany and fun um but uh yeah it's, it but it is sad rip bright night and uh yeah so i guess i will jump in uh as long as we're talking about things in the realm of celebrity deaths um i have one from voanews.com uh by way of the associated press says judy garland returns to hollywood laid to rest in mausoleum that's right uh judy garland has been laid to rest in a mausoleum named for her at hollywood forever cemetery a spokeswoman for garland's estate says her family and friends held a private memorial service for the actress um on saturday this this last saturday Which would have been the 10th of June. And that would have been Garland's 95th birthday. She was buried in the Judy Garland Pavilion. Garland's children had basically wanted to bring their mother remain, bring their mother's remains home to Hollywood, uh, because her third husband had her buried in New York. And so I guess they finally got everything worked out. And now there's actually a wing of this mausoleum where all of them will be buried there. So like Liza Minnelli when she passes away, so on and so forth. And uh just thought that was pretty interesting. And so I wanted to share that with you as well. And in other darker news, I guess, since we're kind of <laughs> in that area right now, from BBC.com, uh, let's see here. By way of U.S. and Canada, I don't have any direct attribution on this story. It says, Woman raped by Roman Polanski asks for, quote, mercy, end quote, to end case. Quote, I would implore you to do this for me out of mercy for myself, end quote, Samantha Geimer told the court. This is due to her basically asking a Los Angeles court to end the case. Polanski admitted statutory rape and served 42 days in prison, but later fled the U.S. Basically, he left because he thought that the plea deal he had reached was going to be scrapped at the time. He has, of course, been in self-imposed exile, And has been in jail a couple of times over this thing, but no one is actually willing to extradite him back. And this is, um, I don't know. This is, this is just the latest step in an ongoing thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of two minds on this. I, I I personally don't know that this guy, I, I don't know that Polanski should get away with it in and of itself, but at the same time, you know, There's only so much you can do. This literally happened 40 years ago. And it's clear that for whatever reason and by whatever means, the victim in this scenario has moved on in life. And when the victim says something like this 40 years later, then maybe there's some resonance to it. At the same time, I don't think that you should get to rape a 13-year-old and get away with it. Um, which is ostensibly what Polanski has done. You know, but as far as we know, he's never done it again. So, look, there's someone who learned their lesson, I guess. This is weird. And I don't know exactly. I mean, it's complicated. So, I don't know. Tim, thoughts? Anything on this? Um, on either one, on the Judy Garland, uh, being reinterred in Hollywood versus New York or, the roman polanski news hmm what if roman polanski hid in judy
1: garland's coffin and (laughs) is now living in the judy garland mausoleum secretly i I don't know about roman polanski i think at this point he is what he's he's got to be 80 now or 83 years old 83 years old if I mean, he's still making movies. Granted, his Hollywood career has not been the same, and he hasn't had great success probably since The Pianist, maybe? One other movie that came afterwards that I loved is called The Ghost Rider that came out in 2009-ish. But I I, I don't know. I, I guess it's really not my place to say. I, I really don't have have an opinion on it. I think... If he did do something wrong, I mean, he he should have to face the consequences. But then again, it's, it happened, you know, 40 years or so ago. And also the victim, who at the time was really young, is now saying that it's all cool now. But then again, she was really young when it happened. So you just, I don't, you really don't know. I just, I, I really, that's really all I have to say, which is I don't, not it, much. Again,
0: it is, yeah, I, I get it. it. This is a really weird, it, it is really weird. I guess you would have to leave it at this basically miss geimer uh, samantha geimer said this and this is where i'll end it quote i am not speaking on behalf of roman but justice i implore you to consider to resolve this matter without incarcerating an 83 year old man end quote i guess that's where we're gonna leave it we'll find out what happens what do you got there tim anything else
1: so via yahoo.com there's this movie called red shoes and the seven dwarfs uh, I never heard of it, but apparently Chloe Grace Moritz is in it. But the title of the article, again from Yahoo.com, and this is from a week or so ago, uh, actually a couple, almost a couple weeks ago. People are not happy about this body-shaming Snow White movie, written by Caroline Bologna uh, via the HuffPost, May 30th, 2017, and it says this. Stories about women in entertainment dominated the 2017 Cannes Film Festival news cycle as Sofia Coppola became the second woman to win the award for Best Director and jury member Jessica Chastain spoke out about the disturbing depictions of women in cinema. Journalists at Cannes tweeted photos of a billboard for Red Shoes and the Seven Dwarfs, a Snow White parody that will reportedly star Chloe Grace Mortz. The ad shows the tall, thin heroine wearing red, high-heeled shoes next to a shorter, heavier version of herself, barefoot and holding the shoes. What if Snow White was no longer beautiful in the Seven Dwarves, not so short? The tagline asks, The suggestion that a shorter, rounder Snow White is, quote, no longer beautiful, end quote, attracted the ire of many parents with young kids. On Tuesday, model and mom of two, Tess Holiday, tweeted a photo of the billboard at Moritz, saying, quote, How did this get approved by an entire marketing team? Why is it okay to tell young kids being fat equals ugly? End quote. Red Shoes and the Seven Dwarves is a product of South Korea's Locust Creative Studios. The company's website describes it as a family-friendly film and outlines the plot as, quote, after seven handsome princes are magically transformed into seven ugly dwarves, they set out on a quest to break the curse by getting a kiss from the most beautiful princess in all the land, end quote. According to IMDb, the movie is a, quote, a parody with a twist, end quote, while Snow White is a German fairy tale famously published by the Brothers Grimm, the Red Shoes in the working title is likely a reference to Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale The Red Shoes, which tells the story of a girl with enchanted red shoes, though the magical shoes in the fairy tale have a slightly more sinister effect than simply making one's appearance conform to societal standards of beauty. The Lotus website, the company website, suggests that the movie has a slightly more empowering message... And apparently the princess character is on a journey to find her lost father and learns, quote, not only to accept herself, but to celebrate who she is inside and out and to let the beauty within shine brighter than anyone else in the land. End all quotes there. Again, uh, if you want to read more about it, do check out this article via Yahoo Style, which is also via HuffPost. People are not happy about this body. Shaving snow white movie. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you find any offense to this? It's hard for me to say because I'm I'm not a woman. I'm not a lady.
0: In short, short, no. Because it's asking a what-if question. And the what-if question is meant to be provocative. And it's meant to get you to think, well, hang on. What is this about? Why are they asking this question? This is kind of interesting. But at the same time, I can... I mean, I, I get the whole idea of let's not body shame. Look, as a, as someone who, you know, hey, I had I, I've lost thirty two pounds this year so far because you know what? I'm like seven thousand pounds. I get it. All right, I'm a I'm a fat guy. I understand that while being fat doesn't mean you have less value, and you should not be you know, uh, shamed and you should not be, you know, made fun of solely because you're fat. Um, let's not take it to the extreme that people are taking it to, which is, you know, uh, fat is the, the new thin and fat is beautiful. No, look, you can be a beautiful person and there's someone for, there's always someone for everyone, but, Let's not pretend that being fat isn't healthy either, okay? Everybody's got their demons. Everybody's got their problems. They manifest themselves in different ways, okay? You know what? You can't see a smoker's lungs, but you can see their face as they age, right? Uh, same kind of a thing here. It doesn't make someone who smokes less of a person doesn't make someone who's fat less of a person. But it, it, it also doesn't automatically mean that every question posed in this way is automatically an attack, if the whole point is to get you to understand, to, to get you to ask why is it, why is this question here, and to search for the answer, so that you understand that the point of the movie is finding the beauty of yourself within yourself, well, then I guess that the I guess the advert did its job. Um, let's not immediately jump to the conclusions here. All right, I mean, I, I really get tired of the special snowflake thing. I mean, you have to remember at the end of the day. All the snowflakes put together just make snow, all right? So, it's okay to ask a question. That is what I think. If that makes any sense at all. (laughs) And that's my news.
2: In that case, we will have discussions... With Matt and Tim, this time on discussions with Matt and Tim. Matt and Tim have their part two discussion of the Netflix documentary Five Came Back. This time we will be discover we will be discussing the works of the five directors and their first films after they returned from the war. And now, discussions with Matt and Tim.
0: Yes, that's right. It's now time for part two of the Five Came Back discussion. Um, And so... As was noted, we are going to be covering these movies in chronological order. So we're going to be doing uh, John Ford's They Were Expendable from 1945. We're then going to jump to William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946, followed by Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life from 1946 as well. Uh, we then have John Huston's uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1945. And finally, we have George Stevens uh, kind of doing a double feature on his. Because um, while of Van Frank is something that's very pertinent to... Do the war it was not his first film back uh, his first film was actually shane in 1953 so that is what we're going to be doing so we'll do shane first from george Stevens, then dire van frank to finish this out i guess we'll just jump right in so we've got 1945's war film directed by john ford starring robert montgomery and john wayne also features donna reed which uh this film is based on a book by william h White, uh, which talks about the Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron, which was a PT boat squadron in uh, the Philippines in World War II. Uh, the film, of course, I'm talking about, they were expendable. And it talks about um, basically the trials and tribulations of this PT boat brigade from 1941 on as they are trying desperately to get out from under the thumb of a very unappreciative navy in the philippines and then of course it ends up where they become where where these men literally become some of the most uh important men of the war because they are able to demonstrate how you can use pt boats uh in combat but it also kind of goes to show um in a way, a lot of the realities of war, but some of the, I guess, some of the darker nature, some of the darkest nature that is warfare in which men based on position, based on the needs of the combat maneuvers and the goals of the mission are meant to die. They're not meant to get out. They're not meant to survive. They're simply meant to bar the enemy's way. And that is the core of this film. And I think it really goes to, I mean, and Tim definitely uh, jump in on this for sure. What makes this movie so so interesting is that you really get to see what the war did to all of these directors. And John Ford, he's the, if you remember from the documentary, and I'm he's the one who snuck off and got drunk after d-day right
1: yeah yeah, right after it
0: right out yeah because he saw and and so you can you can kind of see like what the war did to him in this movie this movie while it's a very very good film it's still a heavily jaded film these guys are not happy robert montgomery plays brick um lieutenant john brick brickley uh john wayne is rusty ryan who's the the, uh, lieutenant in the in the film and these guys are both miserable from the get-go right this is not your average patriotic i'm here to save no these guys are miserable they're actually in the process of trying to get transferred out when pearl harbor happens and they have to stay you could i don't know it's it's really interesting just to kind of see the mindset of what the war did to john ford it's not that the movie is not patriotic, and it's not, I mean, this movie was heavily touted uh, because of its support um, from the Navy and from the Army, I, even the Coast Guard, because this film was actually, uh, was actually done in the Keys, uh, in the Florida Keys, so it's not that it's not patriotic, but it's, it's not exactly, you know, gung-ho, God bless America all the way either. And that is a huge shift in tone from what we would see before now. I don't know, Tim. I mean I I love this. I mean this movie is fantastic. So
1: it's a great movie because up until this time, really, most of the movies that were made by Hollywood were movies that were made for the war effort. Like these lighthearted movies where they glorified war. You know, and this is originally what like George Stevens did not want to do with his light-hearted films. Right before he joined the war, he wanted to quit making his light-hearted movies and do something that was down to earth, more grounded. Well, this is exactly what John Ford did when he got back. I mean, he was so affected by D-Day, him and uh, his group. You know, they shot everything. They shot some of the most horrific battle footage that it scarred him. And when he came back, that that's why in the credits, in the credits, Robert Montgomery was a captain.
0: Robert Montgomery, he was actually a commander. He he really he really was a commander in the uh, navy, in the navy reserves, I believe.
1: But in the credits, he was credited as Commander, uh, Commander Yada Yada Yada, Robert Montgomery. And yes. same for same with John Ford. John Ford was given his proper service name. And it was very interesting because they were proud to serve and do something good for the war effort and to be a part of the army. And in fact, John Ford wanted to continue serving the USA, but he he couldn't because he was a filmmaker. He had to come back and, and do films. And also, I don't think the army really wanted to keep him along as well because He was a heavy drinker and he kind of dug his own grave when he did go off on a three-day bender after D-Day. But he came back and he made They Were Expendable. I, I think it's a little more of a patriotic movie, but there's also a very interesting element of impending doom, which is what you never saw in the Go USA movies from during the war, that Hollywood made during the war. I mean, the whole impending dune, I mean, the entire movie, the audience is wondering, like, will John Wayne's Lieutenant Rusty Ryan live to see his new love interest, played by Donna Reed? Like, and and it actually works, because... The relationship that they establish in this film between the two of them, between John Wayne and, and Donna Reed, isn't this like machismo John Wayne character who grabs the girl and they automatically fall in love. There's like this wonderful little dinner scene where it seems like they spend most of it just looking at each other. And you can just tell that there's this unspoken love between the two of them. And at the end of the movie, when he has to go on this mission and he's trying to get a hold of her and wants to show his affection towards her, he can't get a hold of her. And it's pretty sad when you watch it because John Ford did such a good job at crafting this film and crafting these characters based on what he saw when he was overseas. He saw what the same guys went through in the army. And then the patriotism again, the way they use the music really conveyed this sense of Patriotic doom, I guess. Like right before they're going on this crazy battle where they know one of their PT boats more than likely isn't going to make it out. That's why it's, you know, they're expendable. Uh, they make it a point to say that in the movie that this mission, more than likely, somebody's not going to make it. They do this overwhelming patriotic a uh, theme of you know it's the battle hymn of the republic and it starts swelling as they're loading onto the boat and then the camera shows all these onlookers of the all these other servicemen smiling with pride as the group boards their PT boat for this mission and then another element of patriotism is the old man in the movie who's refusing to live to leave his post after the US surrenders to the japs in the Philippines Again, this is all things you really never saw in these war movies. And, and it actually feels real, you know. Because we all know that we might not make it out alive. Or these soldiers knew that they might not uh, make it out alive. And granted, it doesn't do a, a perfect job at depicting reality and the human condition of war. It does a good job at, at not Hollywoodizing it and doing something a little bit different. This is an incredibly... Beautifully staged and choreographed film with the action, with the explosions. Some of the coolest explosions I've seen in movies happen in this movie. Like when their PT boat gets shot up and they're hiding behind rocks and these trees. Man, the explosion is just insane. And the humor is also wonderful as well. Like these are. It feels like you're watching real soldiers interacting with one another. Um, but then, lastly. One other thing I want to mention about the whole patriotism and the feeling of impending doom that this movie does so well is at the very end of the movie, Ford was trying to capture the atmosphere of World War II and the soldiers that fought it and the importance of this specific group of men. So at the end of the movie, the focus is being shared by not just... Robert Montgomery and John Ford and some of the other men. But at the end of the movie, when a few of the main characters get on the plane and they're flying off to go back home because their job is done, Ford chooses to end the movie with these troops going back to work. More than likely, they're going to get captured. And more than likely, they're going to you know be in some prison camp for however long. And they're walking down this beautiful beach in the Philippines. And again, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Not swelling this time, but beat of a slow drum you know, just kind of going and going. And suddenly the men stop and they look up and all the men smile up at the plane full of soldiers that get to go home. And they're proud to serve their country. But then again, they wish they were up in that plane and knowing that more than likely they're going to get caught. And then they continue going.
0: Right on. Okay, well then let us jump into the next movie. Uh, this one, of course, is going to be uh, William Wyler's submission the best year of our lives from 1946 and i just to clarify from they were expendable obviously the movie has to have patriotic tones otherwise it's not going to get that kind of support that it got from the military um and that has continued even to this day if you're not if you're not per, per, um, portraying the military in a, in a positive light um, they won't sponsor you or support your film but and so what i what i meant to say was not that the film is distinctly unpatriotic or anything like that but that it's not everything for the cause and hurrah let's just go to die it's actually showing you what it means to truly give your all for your country i think would be a better way to say that so just bear that in mind going forward (laughs) um best years of our lives again directed by william wyler produced by samuel Goldwyn. uh the film actually stars um uh, sadly most people that you've probably never heard of but uh the the primary stars were uh mirin alloy frederick march dana andrews Teresa wright virginia mayo and harold russell uh and it follows four different guys uh fred homer um and Al. I'm sorry, three guys. Sorry, Fred, Homer, and Al, uh, who are actually who meet up um from vastly different parts of the military. And they're heading home. And they all happen to live in the same city. And so they kind of get to know each other briefly. And uh as they get home, they're returning to their lives. Fred was actually a uh he's like an Air Force captain and he's a successful bombardier and everything in Europe. um, But he is a soda jerk um and you got to remember millions of gi's were returning home so everybody is capable of doing all of these jobs and yet there you know there was no commercial airlines uh, you know to speak of back then you know you had like pan am right you had eastern um but you wouldn't just be able to naturally transition from being a captain in the air force to just jumping right back into doing anything. And so Fred finds himself not being able to do anything, but be a soda jerk. Um, You've got Al um, who is more, who's kind of like the, the, the the most successful because he kind of had a stable life when he left and so for him it's trying to it's just trying to reassert himself um as a into his stable life but he's got new perspectives that he didn't have before he actually gets in trouble at his job because he sees that he's got this veteran who needs a loan for a home but he doesn't really have any collateral but by virtue of being a veteran he deserves the shot at the loan and so okay let's do it and then his boss gets onto him for it and he's like hang on you know this guy deserves a shot it's like it doesn't matter if he deserves a shot paper he has to have money i mean it's you're immediately seeing all of this kind of stuff homer um was a football quarterback right successful football quarterback he loses his hands when his aircraft carrier sinks um he's literally got hooks for hands and you so so you have to you begin to understand that the best years of our lives is not so much about the fun we have that we experience because of the way we get to grow up in the shadow of the success of veterans, but it's more kind of an ironic statement because the best years of all of these people's lives in one form or fashion were seemingly wasted. And it, and it's not just the people, it's not just the veterans who missed out. Um, you know uh virginia mayo plays marie who works at a nightclub she's fred's uh fiance and um or i guess um wife but they got married very quickly before he shipped out and of course when he comes back despite his success he's just a soda jerk and it puts a tremendous strain on their marriage because you know he's not he's no longer good enough for her and it's like these people have expectations the the women who got left behind had dreams and yet all of those things got put on hold too it's not it it's not that she's not it's not that she's not wrong for wanting more but at the same time what are you supposed to do how do you muddle through and it just and everything kind of goes back and forth as these men try to rebuild their lives and of course there is drama that is you know that forces these people to these these guys to stay interconnected through the rest of the movie but once again it's not about patriotism it's but it's asking real questions that needed to be answered by the general populace um and it was just so expertly done i mean this movie and this movie definitely it was one of the biggest movies since gone with the wind at the time of its release so i mean this movie was fucking huge when it came out this movie got seven academy awards including best picture best director best actor best screenplay i mean it nearly swept all the big categories and um i mean And it shows. This is just a fantastic movie. And once again, we see where William Wyler's headspace is at coming back from the war. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, even when you take the day. Or as I like to say, it's not all sunshine and fucking gummy bears. The reality of life doesn't go away even when there's a happy ending. And this definitely takes a hard look at what comes after. And it's so good. Oh, it's so good. It's not exactly a super happy ending. It's definitely somewhat thought-provoking. But man, it, and even when it, the, the, the culmination of the movie... It's, it, God, it's just so good. So good! So good. Tim, I know I'm just rambling here. But <laughs> feel free to jump in. So
1: William Wyler, when he returned from the war, he was deaf. Because of going up in an airplane, a bomber.
0: It was. It wasn't a B fifty two, was it? It was like
1: a B seventy two. I have it written down right here. So, so after he uh, he wanted to do a follow up of the Memphis Bell. So there's an. He ended up doing this other movie called uh, Shit. I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like Lightning Bolt, I think, or Lightning Bolt
0: Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. Yeah. Thunderbolt. And
1: so it was to model this brand new airplane. I think it was like a B seventy two.
0: P forty seven.
1: Close enough. The P-47 Thunderbolt, <laughs> in which he had to create all these different cool little ways to put cameras in it. He wanted to get cool shots of this new plane, so he got up in another bomber to get all these other shots because he himself couldn't get in this plane. And that is when he lost everything. His hearing—he lost a chunk of his hearing, and it wasn't until later on when he ended up gaining like 25 percent or I think 45 percent of his hearing back. Uh, but that's why he had to leave because he he lost his hearing. So he really wanted to make to make a movie that showed especially showed at least one character with a that left the war with some kind of physical deformity the others suffered mental deformities but what the movie does interestingly is show how all these guys uh, are incredibly similar despite their differences in in uh, in deformities and differences in rank especially and the portrayal of Homer Parrish. He's the one that returns home with the hooks for hands. Well, that character is played by Harold Russell, who did lose his hands while training for World War II, an explosion triggered during practice, and that's how he uh, lost his hands. But he won two Academy Awards for his role of Homer Parrish, Harold Russell did. He was awarded the Honorary Academy Award for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. If they thought there's no way a no name non actor would win the best supporting actor Oscar, because nobody knows who he is. And guess what? He won it. So he is one of the only people to ever win two Oscars for pretty much the same role in one ceremony. And in fact, he was only one of two non actors to win. The Academy Award the other one was I, I forget the guy's name but it was for a later uh, a movie from like the late 80s so this movie has a lot going for it not on top of that but this is William Wyler's best movie beautifully shot it shows you the isolation that soldiers feel before the Hurt Locker showed us what soldiers in Iraq felt uh, you know, that uh, and in and, and, and like the, the grocery store scene when he walks in the grocery store and you see all those advertisements for products everywhere and you can just tell in some way he's a little bit taken back by it. It's just absolutely fascinating and something that nobody really experienced at the movie theater at that time or saw in a Hollywood movie at that time. It's an absolutely wonderful film. Everybody out there who considers themselves to be a cinephile or a movie buff, you have definitely got to check out The Best Years of Our Lives.
0: All right. Well, that moves us uh, directly into the most well-known of all of these movies, I'm sure, uh, which would be, of course, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, uh, which debuted just about a month after uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And not, not a whole lot to add to this, other than Frank Capra was, uh, really the only director that didn't actually, um, get out very much, if you will. Uh, that's not, that's not to say that what he didn't, that, that what he did wasn't important by any stretch of the imagination, but he never really went overseas that much. Um, a lot of the work that he did stayed in Hollywood or stayed in Washington, D.C., um, and he definitely had a vision. He, he was, he was definitely most profoundly patriotic. I would argue he was probably the most ardent patriot of all of the directors that are covered in Five Came Back, uh, by a mile. Um, and yet, uh, you know, his experiences were a lot different. And I think that what is so interesting is that not only is this Frank Capra's first movie back, but it's also James Stewart's uh jimmy stewart's first movie after he came back from the war and i think that the i think what makes this movie so wonderful uh <laughs> no pun intended is that it doesn't shy away from its own versions of the problems that life can bring to you um, and while it definitely doesn't necessarily do it in terms of the war it does show you from the perspective of someone who wanted to go but couldn't and i think that's a little bit of capra in there because if you remember um george because of his ear he was 4f so he didn't get to go and yet he was you know he he made sure to always keep the town morale up he was there for every drive he was there for all the rationing he was the, the air raid warden and everything like that um and and so he demonstrated his love for his country and his willingness to fight and support the war by doing everything he could at home and interestingly enough that's kind of what in, in a in a similar vein that's what Capper did but i think what makes this movie so important is that someone who saw action like jamie stewart Is that you have to make the conscious choice to to move on, to move forward, to find the meaning and the beauty of your life, because your life is still important, and... When you watch this movie, after just having coming off of Five Came Back, and for me, I had just finished watching Shane before I watched this one. <laughs> it's a, It makes the movie a hell of a lot more touching. It's really good. You know, if you want to hold off till Christmas to watch this one because it's your, one of your perennial favorites, then fine. But I would highly encourage you, before you watch this movie again, do your best to try and watch... At least any number of these other movies, uh one or two of these other movies, or at the very least watch five came back before you watch this one, and uh see if it changes your perspective. What do you think, Tim?
1: Yeah, no, for sure, totally agree. so what's interesting about Frank Capra and it's a wonderful life is that the character of George Bailey he's a man who who pretty much sacrifices his personal time you know his his family time. To serve others. But the funny thing is, is that nobody remembers him for it. At all. And when Frank Capper returned to the U.S. after the war, he was an unknown. Nobody knew who he was. There was new people in the movie industry. There were new executives, new producers, yada, 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 new writers. Nobody really wanted to work for him. So he went and established his own movie company called Liberty Films. And I guess, ironically again it's a wonderful life bombed and it caused liberty films to go bankrupt and the movie was never appreciated until the 60s and 70s when it was on syndicated tv during the holidays and that's when people fell back in love with it and realized it was such a great
0: movie 70s and 80s really 70 70? okay 70s and it, yeah 80s. because because it had to fall into public domain before then so it had it. It literally had to sit for, like, 25 years before they could start showing. Oh, so wow. Oh, that's crazy. 40, so 46 and 25 would be 71, the earliest. Yeah. So,
1: But, I mean, we all know. I would expect that we all know what It's a Wonderful Life is. So I'm not going to really say anything else. But just keep in mind next time you watch it. And after you watch Five Came Back documentary, just keep in mind what Frank Capra was going through when he made that movie. And if anything... It might make the film that much more poignant, especially the character of George Bailey. It might make him that more relatable.
0: Now we have 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and this of course is john houston uh this was his first movie back and this of course is uh it's actually based on a novel a novel from 1927 by the same name and it's about two guys who are basically desperate for money and they join um a, an old prospector in a hunt for gold in mexico at a time when it was very dangerous to hunt for gold in mexico film stars Humphrey Bogart, Walter Huston, uh, Tim Holt, and Bruce Bennett. And this is a movie where three guys, uh, it's three, it, basically two guys, a guy by the name of Dobbs and another guy by the name of Curtin. Dobbs is played by Humphrey Bogart. Curtin is played by Tim Holt. And they basically meet an old prospector, played by Walter Houston, who takes him under his wing as he goes and looks for gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. And it turns out that Houston actually uh, knows Howard, the prospector, played by Houston. Uh, Walter Houston knows what the uh, it, uh, he actually knows what the hell he's talking about and they find gold unfortunately desperation leads to greed and you kind of see what greed does to men again really really interesting after having watched 5 came back to see the themes that come out of this movie this movie has absolutely nothing to do with the war has absolutely nothing to do with war in and of itself on its face and yet it goes to the human nature that ruins all good things Um, or that has the potential to destroy all good things and yet um, by the end of the movie you can also see the indomitable spirit of someone who refuses to succumb to the evil side of human nature and it's really interesting to watch Dobbs as he kind of progresses through the movie Um, Humphrey Bogart uh, is generally known as kind of the Sam Spade-esque character you know very cool um, you know tough when he needs to be but in this one he's literally unhinged and it's really a cool performance by uh, Humphrey Bogart I, I hadn't seen this movie in a long long time I remember watching this movie with my mom and my stepdad when I was uh, probably about twelve or thirteen, and I, I don't think I've seen it since. Uh, so it's been a long, long time. And this really gave me a new appreciation—or a renewed appreciation—for the ability of, of Bogart to act, but also for John Huston to direct, because he has just totally got this vision in his head of what of what it's going to take uh for everything to work and yet he also knows just when to put that one it's like the whole jenga tower right he knows exactly when to pull the piece that that works and when the piece that causes part of it to crumble because that's exactly what needs to happen so that we can see the remaining of the remaining tower and even though you would normally stop once part of the tower breaks because that's the end of the game in this in this instance houston keeps going they, nope, nope. It's not enough. But that's not good enough. Let's clear out those pieces and see what's left. And let's let's continue to play. Let's pull another piece and see how that works. And let's pull another piece, and see where it tumbles again. And and it's done against the backdrop of uh, the uh, of Mexico after its uh, very disastrous Mexican Revolution, and um, the banditos who were basically um, desperate in their own way. Versus the Federales, who had their own level of desperation to try and maintain some semblance of control. And then when you have all this gold, uh, at, at, in play, it just changes the dynamic of everybody. And it's just really interesting to watch Bogart, to watch Dobbs as he transitions throughout this movie. And you gotta wonder why houston chose this particular movie and when you think about how war affects someone and the experiences that the likes of houston and weiler and and capra had um it's it's not it's not unreal uh, unrealistic to expect that a movie like this might be the first one that comes back it's a fantastic movie totally fantastic movie tim what do you think, sir? Where are you, where are you at on this one?
1: The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is my all-time favorite Humphrey Bogart movie. It's probably my all-time favorite John Huston movie, and it's my favorite of the bunch of movies that we watch for this. And it's not a World War II movie. <laughs> but yet, it is the movie that John Huston made right when he got back. But he's been wanting to make this movie for years. Ever since the book was first introduced to him, he's just been wanting to make it. And Warner Brothers was also wanting to make it for a period of time. And in fact, he was in line to make it before the war. And there were all these other directors that were wanting to make it because John Huston was out and... Uh, And the the execs and the producers at Warner Brothers just kept coming up with with excuses as to why all these other people shouldn't make the movie, but it should be John Huston whenever he gets back from the war. And ultimately, he came back, they made the movie, and it's absolutely wonderful. And it didn't do well at the movie theater. In fact, the movie was not really the first of its kind, but it was one of those unsuspected audience dividers. Like... The tough guy doesn't get his way, and that's what Bogart used to play. So Bogart, right off the bat, is playing against type. And this movie is also layered as well. There's more to this movie that's actually darker and more dramatic and more, I guess, in a way, psychotic than a lot of these other movies, let alone other Humphrey Bogart movies that people have seen and loved for a number of years. Like, it's no Maltese Falcon, despite starring... Humphrey Bogart and directed also by John Huston. And what I mean by this movie is layered is that there is a bandito, one of the Mexican banditos, that pops up. He has his moment to shine at the end of the movie. His name is, he's credited as Gold Hat. Well, actually, that character is Dobbs's alter ego, and Dobbs meets his alter ego at, a, at the pinnacle, at the most crucial part of the film, at least for his character. It's just absolutely fascinating, and it's seriously that good and, and well-crafted. It's pretty phenomenal. And that's what I'm going to say about it, because I really don't want to give away too much of this one.
0: Very cool, very cool. All right, well, then we are going to move into 1953's Shane. Uh, basically, uh, this is George Stevens' seminal Western classic, and, um, now, and you'll note this is definitely the longest period of (laughs) lapse in filmmaking from the directors of Five Came Back, and, um, given that, you know, the first movie was in 1945 and we're already at 1953, um for George Stevens. This movie is, I think, probably, if, I mean, at the end of the day, I kind of have to, Maybe more for uh, personal reasons. I would have to say that this is probably my number one of all of these movies. Mainly because this is kind of like the idealized Western version, if you will, of why we fight. And I think it goes to a, a lot of what made America stand out in the 50s and the 60s as as it turned into this um as, basically as it turned into the international first world power that it did out and beyond after world war ii And th- this movie kind of goes to the heart of everything that makes that possible. It's a man with a past. Shane. He's a man with a past and it's clear that he has a past. And yet there is something inherently Good in him that is that in and of itself is intrinsically flawed, and while he is quiet and he stands up for good, you're not ever sure throughout this entire movie because he just kind of comes in and these homesteaders are getting run over uh who have every right to be there. It's an evil cattle baron, and he's literally the only person in a position to stand up for him, and he has no reason to and yet he does and you don't ever know through the whole movie whether or not he's trying to make up for his shortcomings or if this is truly who he always has been and he just kind of moves to the next place where he's needed as he goes and for me i i think that this this movie shows how the war affected steven's the U.S. does come out on top at the end of World War II, primarily because, um, because of geography. We didn't have anything actually truly touch the mainland of North America in, in and of its entirety. Um, there are some exceptions here and there, um, and, and clearly, we you know, Hawaii is not the mainland of North America but america does as we have come to realize and accept more and more today america despite its greatness definitely has a lot of things to answer for and you almost have to wonder is that it is the spirit behind america what's wrapped up in shame is that what stevens is really asking and in some ways, it doesn't matter because it's just such a beautifully shot movie. And there's just so many, like the epitome of, of, ev- of virtually every trope you've ever seen is in this movie. But it's the epitome, right? It's the key. It's the start. It's where it's the genesis. So when you see Jack Palance, um, in his, uh, role of jack wilson right and you see the stereotypical black he's just wearing all black the black hat the black leather gloves right um you know he's the bad guy we know shane's the good guy because of the white hat but he often wears neutral colors and and yet he stands up for it you've got the the sweet innocent and yet at the same time completely saccharine annoying kid (laughs) <laughs> um and it and, and yet it works it just everything works and again seeing this movie after having seen five came back i mean you you're just you're, you're in a whole different mindset watching these movies and it's just wow just such a powerful film i i would say that for me um as cool as Treasure of the Sierra Madre is, and I can definitely understand why that would be Tim's greatest, uh, you know, favorite pick out of these. For me, Shane still does it because there's just so much that you can put into this movie and the movie constantly gives. With the exception of the kid. I I, I can see how the kid could be annoying.
1: The only downfall with Shane for me is the little kid. But, I mean, that, that's not saying too much. It's a, it's a beautiful movie. Poor
0: Brandon. Little Brandon, he just didn't know any better. He, he didn't, he didn't. No.
1: But yet, his mother let him play with that fucking gun. And as yeah. a kid, I always thought he was going to shoot Chain by accident, and that was going to be fucking devastating. <laughs> but the bar scene in the movie is so cool. I always thought that, that the bar fight scene was really neat. It, it's it's a great movie. Oh,
0: and and for the rec- for the record, I we, we we kid as we say, poor Brandon. The character's name is Joey, but the actor's name is Brandon Wild which is why we keep saying Brandon. So. He's cursed by the
1: Shane, Shane.
0: But my my favorite
1: George Stevens movie between these two is the next George Stevens movie.
0: We can get right to that if you like. I just didn't know if you wanted to add anything to Shane.
1: No, nah, you get Shane, baby.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, this is definitely an interesting uh An interesting close, because while this is George Stevenson's technical, I mean, it's his second film after he came back, this movie, however, Diary Van Frank 1959 version, is, is one that directly deals with a very unique perspective of World War II, which is, of course, the Holocaust. And this is definitely one of the first films, uh, to seriously, seriously go into detail about what the Holocaust actually did without, without having to be gory, as, uh, which would have been exceptionally difficult given the time constraints. Um, and I, and I say, I mean, time constraints, but given the time period, uh, you know, 1959, you are not going to be able to do Schindler's List, right? So I think that, It's very telling that George Stevens chose this story as his first real true story to tell about World War II after coming back, especially having coming, having come off Shane. I think it's a great movie though. It's a little slow in parts for me, but it's a one-room drama. So there's some of that I think is meant to drag because it's meant to help you feel like what it must have felt like to literally spend years in a room by yourself, um, or with a family. What do you got? Tim, I'll let you close this out.
1: So George Stevens's The Diary of Anne Frank is based on a play written by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, which is based, of course, on the book Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl, written by Anne Frank. And uh, I I believe her father, Otto Frank, received a credit, a writing credit as well, because he had to translate her diary from Dutch to some other language, because he did that for his family after the liberation of, of the concentration camp they were at and spoiler alert for those of you who did not take any form of english or history class otto frank was the only one from the frank family who survived devastating stuff but if you want to learn more about it get the blu-ray of it the blu-ray for diary of anne frank is absolutely beautiful i bought it it's fantastic george stevens was the one director who was affected i think the most from the experience of serving overseas He shot the liberation of a concentration camp. He just shot, I mean, basically when a lot of these other guys were finished with the war right after D-Day, George Stevens' journey was just beginning, and he went to go shoot the Paris Agreement. He went to go shoot all these other historical moments that happened right after the end of the war, including, of course, the liberation of various camps. And so he was affected by what he saw, and in fact, when he went to make The Diary of Anne Frank in 1959 to prepare him for the making of this film, he went back and looked at some of his own footage, and it was all in color. He only lasted 10 minutes before he put the film back in this vault or this library or wherever he had it stored, and he never touched it since. That's how he was affected by the footage that he shot. And so he applied a lot of that, those feelings to the diary of Van Frank. Yes, it was made in the 50s. Yes, most of the people in this movie are Americans, like Millie Perkins, who plays Anne Frank, and Shelley Winters, and Ed Wynn. Yes, Disney's Ed Wynn is in this movie. Um, and Richard Boehmer, who, he's uh, Ben Horne in Twin Peaks, and he was also in West Side Story. But it's a wonderful film, and it's the little nuances that really get you. It's three hours. Yes, it's a one-room drama, but it's absolutely intriguing to watch i highly recommend it again get the blu-ray for it it's totally well worth your money Uh, i can go on and on about the diary of anne frank but i won't because of time
2: thank you and thus concludes our discussion of five came back the netflix documentary where we this time in the part two covered all of the works of the directors covered in five came back next time the Mona segment will be a new segment called she made me watch it where matt and tim discuss a movie that each of their significant others ask them to watch Tim's SO has chosen Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken from 1991, and Matt's significant other chose Now and Then from 1995. So until next time, you have been listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim
0: all right and without further ado i guess it's time for the movies is it not sir let's do it all right then here we go folks it's the movie we (laughs) we Shall we venture on to... Dracula. Yes. Yes. Uh, why don't you go ahead and lead us off, sir?
1: All right. In a nutshell, Dracula Untold is actually a untold story of the origins of Dracula. And this movie would have been completely... Well, I think it would have been better if it was going to be made by the original director. And I forgot his name. Alex Proyas? Yes. Originally Alex Proyas, the director of one of my all-time favorite sci-fi movies, Dark City, was supposed to make this movie um a few years back, but for one reason or another, it didn't didn't work out. He wanted to make a, a Dracula story about Vlad the Impaler. And Really, this movie isn't about Vlad the Impaler because all the stuff that happens takes place after all of the unpa- impaling when he decides to be a better human being, a better husband, a father, and a, a better leader, a trustworthy leader, a good leader that doesn't impale people, you know, on sharp things. Of course, as you probably know from the trailers, he uh, encounters a vampire and you know decides to become the you know what you know as the dracula character to defeat the uh the turks right
0: yes yes Yes. indeed it is the turks
1: in order to defeat the turks who are pretty much about to kill everybody in his uh in within his kingdom his town his village uh, kingdom village towns the idea of the movie is interesting until i found out they were Planning on making a Avengers style series of movies where later on in the like modern set time era, uh, era Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, and the wolfman are going to team up and fight crime. You even get to see a Nick Fury character there at the end of Dracula Untold where uh, he's apparently going to be the guy that assembles all these different movie horror Creatures. But I'm not going to go any, in really any more detail. So uh, that annoyed me at first until later on I, I found out that the plan to make, uh, to go in that direction didn't happen until post-production of Dracula Untold. Uh, that is when they decided to go back, reshoot some scenes, and that is when they did, went ahead and reshot the last three, four minutes of the movie uh, that you see on the screen now. Which honestly doesn't help this movie much it's ugly to look at it's a very muddled film you really don't get to see the scope of the movie and honestly i think that's what it was missing it was missing scope it felt like every time there was a shot of somebody you know it was supposed to be like a party scene and it felt like there were only like 10 extras in the scene when there's supposed to be all these people you have the bad guys who are obviously the bad guys doing bad guy things. Oh, I guess there's a little bit of tension in the movie. And there is a little bit of, I guess, what people call epicness to the movie, to where there is some thrills to it. There is some heart. There is some touching moments, though it is all forced. But there is some of that there. There is an excellent um sequence, close in the end of the movie, which fuels Dracula's anger that... Kind of mix up for some of the bad stuff that you see in the movie until you find out that that's the end of the movie. Like, that's kind of what it builds up to. And that's it. It's a a little frustrating. I think they could have taken a few notes from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There could have been more of a build-up to the character. There could have been a a more of a build-up to the climax. There wasn't really much background at all. You're just kind of thrown into the story to where you're supposed to have sympathy for this character that murdered so many people. He murdered an entire town to keep 10 other towns safe 10 other villages safe and yet you're being told all this horrible stuff about vlad, about vlad the impaler but yet you're supposed to feel his his sympathy and you want him to win you you're, you're rooting for him or that's what you're supposed to do and it's just missing that key ingredient to make you care Despite all the special effects and and all of the uh, and the minimal excitement that is in the movie, I mean this movie definitely has potential. It just lacked it. It didn't. It, it it needed more excitement. Uh So I give this movie two and a half. I mean, if you just go to the movies just to sit back, eat popcorn, and, and enjoy it, you'll probably give it you know three and a half out of five, or possibly even four out of five. The people that I was with thoroughly enjoyed the movie and. You know, I mean, that's cool, too. But two and a half on my end.
0: Right on. Yeah, I, I have to agree because with, with Tim. The only thing I would say is, while I was definitely looking forward to a really nice origin story setup, since they're trying to revitalize this franchise of Universal Monsters, I was hoping that they would do... Honestly, something along the lines of the Avengers, where you have several individual stories that uh, set up a need or a reason for a team to come together. And just like Tim, I was disappointed that they decided to focus on the, com- the combat aspect, although I have to say that they really did come up with a very inventive way to have a master vampire situation going on, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but I really felt it was somewhat bait and switched, especially by the time you get to the end of the film. Uh, so, yeah. The action sequences are pretty cool, special effects are pretty nice. Once I realized that they weren't going to give you the story and they were focusing more on the action aspect of it, um, but with very dark elements that are kind of horror-esque. Um, because this definitely falls into more of a dark fantasy kind of action or kind of film versus just straight up horror. And I, I just kind of took the, took Tim's alternate view of popcorn flick, turn the brain off and just sit back and see where it takes, see where the ride takes you. And in doing so, I can say I liked it. Um, it's definitely, in my opinion, it's, it's on par with, if not somewhat better than Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, with, of course, the one, you know, with Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman, Anthony Hopkins and Keanu Reeves. It's definitely got its drawbacks, but I think in terms of simple popcorn and watching it, three stars uh I, I definitely have to say it for me better than okay and it it peaked at like i gotta say just barely it was almost two and three quarter stars for me but for the action special effects and realizing that i wasn't going to get the story that i was going to get three stars and that's where i'll leave it aminette understood power was not given it had to be taken She made a choice to embrace evil. Set the god of death. They made a pact. A pact that would unleash darkness itself. So, The Mummy. Yes, The Mummy is the movie that we're covering this week. This is the latest attempt for Universal to rekindle its quote unquote dark universe. And, um, for those who are un, uh, unaware, Dracula Untold, uh, was the original attempt at that. And I know that Tim has been so kind as to provide a re-review, if you will, of that, uh, uh, of that movie so that you can kind of get an idea of where they were versus where they are now and to where they're headed but basically what we have here group of crusader knights who have taken a large ruby from ancient egypt and they bury it with one of their brethren right um and then we jump to uh present day and we've got tom cruise who is uh basically he, he's a treasure hunter Right. He's a modern day treasure hunter. Uh, and just after the tomb in England, these these knights, just after their tomb was rediscovered. He is uh, out in Iraq, which is modern day Mesopotamia. Right. Um, and they end up finding this tomb and the tomb happens to belong to an evil, uh, an evil, evil woman who, well, I mean, it's not that she's really evil, right? Uh, It's just more or less that uh, she felt she deserved the throne, and she was going to lose it to uh, her baby brother, and she decided she couldn't do that. So she tries to sell her soul to Set, the god of um, death, I guess, the Egyptian god of death, and, of course, it doesn't quite work out. She ends up being mummified alive, and now we know why there's this tomb there. Um... And since Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise's character was kind enough to awaken her, he's chosen as, uh, her new special guy. <laughs> you are my number one guy. Um, at any rate, and so shenanigans ensue, yada, yada, yada. Turns out that, uh, you know, th- you know, while he's just trying to figure out what the hell's going on with himself, there's also another group headed by Russell Crowe, uh, and it basically, it's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, 2017 version, and, and now they need Tom Cruise's character as well. Um, so yeah, lots of shenanigans going on, uh, tons and tons of special effects. This is, it, it's, okay, so, the, the problem with the movie for me is twofold. One, um, it's, it's too much try hard, including special effects. Um, and yet in the course of their try hard, they accidentally stumbled across a few cool things. Um, I like the concept of reincorporating you know the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen aspect. Um, Tom Cruise and his other buddy—I can't think of his name. Uh, Jake Johnson is the guy. Uh, is the actor's name? This is Sergeant Sergeant Chris Vale is apparently his character's name. And um, they they came across these actors and actresses who you know what they they can act. And so there's like somewhat of these like spurts of believability in terms of uh the 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 banter and the camaraderie that exists um and they also throw in nods to other movies um there's a nod to the decomposing guy in american werewolf in london uh throughout this movie there's nods to other horror films in and of themselves, and including also the Brendan Fraser mummy from 20 plus years ago. So they've, you know, they, they really did go out of their way to try and kick this thing off, um, right, uh, again, uh, because remember, Dracula Untold, um, but, then we get into the other half of the equation, which is they have literally created an entire universe that at least based upon this movie is 100% um, dependent on Tom Cruise. And I don't know that we need another 17 film franchise from Tom Cruise. I'm not sure this was the right decision. Moreover... Just because you have these glimpses of good characters and camaraderie doesn't mean it always works when it's trying to flow together. Um, you're, you're ostensibly just kind of asked. You are literally, in my opinion, forget ostensibly, you're just literally asked to turn off your brain. There's tons and tons of people who don't know how to turn off their phones when they're supposed to be recording. And then there's also... Um, the fact that they're literally just asking you to turn off your brains. So many plot holes, so many plot holes, it's not even worth mentioning. Um, and yet the film is kind of fun. Kinda. Um, perhaps it's because my expectations were lowered, but, um, I just, in as much as my review was all over the place and yet somehow probably kind of entertaining, so is The Mummy 2017. I give this one, uh, 2.75 out of 5. Um, it's, it's a little better than okay. It's definitely not terrible, but I can't truly say that I liked it either. Let me think. Just let me
2: think. If anyone is listening, this is now 26 R10 huh?
1: Request Dynamic Precision Strike at our mark. You did not. Just call it an airstrike. Oh, yes. I did. Where are you
2: going? Don't leave me! There's
0: ah, doing to go! Oh, no, we're gonna die. die! Please, Bill! Let me think! We're gonna die because of you! Just let me think! What? I'm thinking... What are you thinking? I'm thinking we're probably gonna die here. I knew it! Tim, save me. Save me, Aya uh, uh, Senpa, right? Would saving that, you that,
1: would saving you mean me giving it a significantly lower score than two point seven five?
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. maybe. <laughs> did, did you get bit by a camel spider? Anyway. I did,
1: and I was just <laughs> as annoying as that guy when he got bitten by that. I'm sorry, man. The the weakest part of this movie, other than the overall movie is this guy, Jack, uh, Jake Johnson, the Chris Vail character. He was so fucking annoying. And again, like that's saying that he's the worst among other really crappy things. And as where Matt found the references to other movies a good step in the right direction maybe for this movie, I just thought it was too much. And they relied way too much on these references. Because, for example, when... Jake Johnson's Chris Vale character, his character, when he dies, he comes back and basically haunts Tom Cruise and provides exposition. And unlike in John Landis's An American Werewolf in London, where you have Griffin Dunn's character of Jack Goodman, where he's the best friend of the guy who eventually becomes the werewolf, he ends up getting mauled to death by the werewolf, but he appears as a ghost with all the maulings and he's obviously dead and as the movie goes on and as he appears more he's more he he looks more and more deteriorated and dead like like i understand if if like they were wanting to reference that in a way or pull a little bit from american werewolf in, in london that's cool but they kept relying on it he kept being the comedic of uh, not the comedic fallback because even tom cruise was trying to play a different type of character which did not work too many comedic characters trying to compete with each other as to who is funny, when it is absolutely clear that none of them are funny or cheeky or can actually pull off a significant quip or anything like that. That was just one of the most annoying things out of a handful of other really big annoying things. Another annoying aspect was the dialogue, the exposition-filled dialogue. And a lot of the dialogue, when it's not brought to us by Jake Johnson's character, is brought to us by... Annabelle Wallace's character of Jenny Halsey. Halsey, 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 or Halsey. I don't fucking know. But, of course, she is the Rachel Weiss character. She is the English speaking love interest. But she's not as cute as Rachel Weiss. And she's not as charming as Rachel Weiss. And she's not as. She doesn't have the same screen presence as Rachel Weiss. And for that matter, a lot of the other people, including Tom Cruise, even though it's obvious that Tom Cruise is having a good time, he's working his butt off, and he pulls some things off okay, I guess? Nobody really looks good playing these characters, or sounds good playing these characters, if that makes any sense whatsoever. And I was pulling these references from the the 1997 or 1999 Mummy movie uh, with the whole Rachel Weiss thing, is because this movie. Most of all, rips off the 1999 mummy. It's just roles are reversed. In the Brendan Fraser mummy, the mummy was after Evie, the Rachel Wise. In this one, Sophia Butella's Aminette is going after Tom Cruise. Aminette, if you remember from the Brennan Fraser mummy movie, is who, uh, what's his name? As I forget his name. He was trying to resurrect Aminette from Rachel Weisz. So it's a lot of the same exact story, but gender roles are reversed, and some very minor things are kind of swapped around. But I did mention the exposition-filled dialogue. You can hear a lot of this in the trailer for it, like whenever they first come across the tomb. And Tom Cruise, uh, or, and they're all like inspecting the tomb. And somebody is like, uh, or actually it's the British woman, uh, Jenny, she goes, these chains are not for bringing it up. They're for keeping it down. Of course, she doesn't sound like it. She sounds more British and more feminine. And then it's like, she says this. So automatically she's able to get all this information just by looking at it like static chains and static vines and like crap all over the place. There's no, no, no normal human being can just look at something and realize, wait a minute, I think that is for submerging and keeping it submerged and not for bringing it back up or resuscitating or, or, or something like that, you know. And of course she explain she exclaims, oh my God, they're keeping it here. And then of course Tom Cruise shoots... That little rope thing which triggers a whole mechanical fucking Egyptian thing that automatically brings the tomb up and the story continues. So if I was one of those fuckers years and years ago that was burying this bitch, I think I would make sure there wouldn't be any feasible way at all that anybody could ever, ever potentially, accidentally raise this coffin out of its mercury tomb like why not just keep the coffin submerged and have something heavy on top of it just to keep it down there i don't know just a lot of crap like that that is just so blatant at least for me it was so blatant that i just couldn't help noticing it other than noticing that every single major plot setting we are we've already saw in the in the trailer for example the airplane stunt the crazy car wreck uh, when the mummy's chained up at the end, a lot of stuff with Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll. It's everything we already know. So when you're watching this movie, especially when you pay money to see a movie like this, a lot of people are going to pay attention. And one one thing that I absolutely hate about trailers, uh, it's the same thing with Spider-Man: Homecoming. It's the same thing with a number of other trailers I've seen where I've already where I've seen the movie. They give away so much of the plot, and it's always fun when you go into a scene. And you have no idea what's going to happen. Because we've seen the trailer, we already know what's going to happen to Tom Cruise in the outcome of the airplane scene. So suspense, out the window. The car wreck scene, we already know what leads up to it. We already know what happens after it. No suspense there. No mystery. And then the chains. We already get an idea of how she's going to break out of those chains from the trailer. So no suspense. Other than that, I think the most important thing that this movie was lacking, and again, I'm going to compare it to the 1999, The Mummy, and even the one that came out a couple years later, The Mummy Returns, even though The Mummy Returns isn't that great of a movie, but I still think it's a, it's better than this one, is that it doesn't have heart. You know, it doesn't have a soul to it. There's no suspense, there's no wonder, and then there's no danger. And the oh, I'm only going to expound on that by giving one example, and that is when they come to the giant hole in the ground, where they will eventually discover the tomb. So they get up to the hole, they look down, and nobody is, like, freaked out about it. Not even the Jake Johnson, Chris Vale character, Jenny H- Hazley, British woman, she's intrigued by it, but nobody is scared. Not necessarily scared, but there's there nobody is worried. It's like they're gonna go into quip mode instead of like being like, oh shit, that's a big hole, and then we're gonna cr- climb down it and then we're gonna experience it, other than just repelling down into this hole, and then suddenly you know, you know, you come across this vast room where it just so happens there's this tomb and a shit ton of mercury. So that is why I give the mummy 2017 1.5 out of five i will admit that like matt i had to be um not in the right frame of mind to enjoy it for the most part until it just got a little too tedious and, and way too predictable but i think if alex kurtzman wasn't the one directing this movie and they did a couple more passes with the script it could have been something entertaining so 1.5 out of five for me
0: Welcome to Prodigium, Mr. Morton. From the latter, Monstrum Bell Prodigium. A warning of monsters. Forgive the state of things, we had very little time to prepare for our guest. And only the information Jennifer provided to go on. In truth, she works for us. It's not an exact science, this business. And the business being... Evil. Mr. recognize, contain, examine, destroy. She is by far the most ancient we've ever encountered. Awesome. All right, well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Cars 3, and it comes at night, both of which will be in the theater. So I guess without further ado, we can just go ahead and get right to the spiel, right? Spiel on! Oh! Right. Well, the music you are listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our movie part- music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both, slash cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, And you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter, at NickTwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as Track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Tom Cruise, I get to say this: nothing ends nicely. That's why it ends. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week.